About 230 years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Uh, and I know that that does not calculate with the beginning of the revolution. My point is, legally and constitutionally, they had drafted a constitution that made us a land of law and order about 230 years ago. America, United States, a land not only of law and order, but also liberty. A land of not only law and order constitutionally, but increasingly a land of not liberty, but libertinism. Law and order. Why is it then, and I'll go back to one of my pet peeves, why is it then that I have to sit at a stoplight for three to four seconds before I pull through it? You know what I'm talking about. People running red lights regularly at the bottom of the hill near my house. Texas ranks number two in the number of deaths in the United States because of people running red lights. The number one city violation, violator, Houston. Number six, Dallas. Number nine, San Antonio. Three of the top ten. Do we live in a land of law and order where people respect the law? We have an extensive legal system. 205 accredited law schools in the United States with 1.5 million lawyers. Maybe that's part of the problem. 108 federal courts, innumerable state and local courts in the state of Texas, 2,650 courts. We say that we live in a land of law and order, but when you look at the corporate abuse of the law, it says something else. In healthcare, computerized billing fraud, annually $350 billion and only about 1% recovered. Wage theft by businesses of low income earning employees, $50 billion a year, only about 4% recovered. Tax evasion by businesses to the tune of almost half a trillion dollars of uncollected taxes. And then we look at the cities. We look at the movement about two to three years ago that sought to defund the police, and in some cities, the budgets were drastically reduced, and the results were predictable. In Portland, shootings triple. The murder rate was up 170% in the next year, and car theft was up 70%. In New York City's Shootings increased by 81% in 2021. Rape and robbery were up 35%. In Oakland, carjackings went up 88% and murder up 43%. Austin, in the year after the defunding police movement began, experienced its highest murder rate in 20 years and LA its highest rate in 15 years. America, a land of law and order, you see, the problem, I think, is not just laws. Yes, we have some inadequate laws, some that are overcomplicated. There is legal abuse, and there is a lack of enforcement in many cases. But that's not the real problem, I think. I'll go back to something that we have said many times. We spoke about it many times when we discussed the cultural apologetic issues about a year ago. And that is post-modernity would have us deconstruct the truth and say there is no meta-narrative, there's no ultimate truth, or if there is, we cannot know it. That combined with the product ultimately of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment is not bad necessarily except for the humanistic emphasis on individualism so that it has almost become a cult. 
No, the problem really is a moral problem. We live in a land today, and we know this, of extreme hedonism and self-indulgence and self-focus, a world of selfies and look at me and pay attention to me. We live in a land of virtual social anarchy at times. You know, you may tire of this analogy, but it's true. Like Israel in the day of the judges. Now you look at that book, you know, what do we always quote from judges? In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what? Right as they saw in his own eyes. But what's interesting about that is it's not at the beginning of the book of Judges, it's at the end. It's not only a summary of what happened. Time and time and time and time again, God rescued Israel from the depths of depravity and virtual destruction, rescued her, and she went back to her old ways. And at the end of the book, it says that they were doing what was right in their own eyes still after the Lord had rescued them time and time again. You see, I would say, some would say, we live in the day-to-day likened to that, like the days of the judges. I would say, no, we don't. I, I would say, no, we don't. We live in worse times. We live in times when there is no excuse. We have constitutional law and we have regulatory powers to live in a civil society. Then why are we so uncivil? After 4,000 years from the time of the judges, we live in a time of cultural enlightenment and social development and scientific advance. We live in a time where we have plenty of historical vision in the past, hindsight to understand the error of our ways. We have almost all of human information from almost all of history at our fingertips on our phones. We have the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have the gospel influence of Jesus Christ that has transformed cultures throughout the ages. And yet we live in a new dark age. We live in an age where, no, people do not live according to what they think is right. Many people don't even do that. Many people live according to this motto, I will get by with what I can get by with. And with no thought for others, often with impunity. Folks, I have not just described the society out there. I've also described to some degree what is happening in our churches, in some of our churches. Sex scandals in our denomination No longer can we point a finger at other denominations and say, look at how bad their priests or ministers are. We have had it in our own ranks, and yet our leaders, when they were first confronted with this, tried to excuse it and dismiss it. Some of our worship services, people don't come to please God. They come for self-indulgent worship to gratify themselves. I'll say it again. Some preach prosperity and not accountability. They build their own kingdoms of wealth and power and numbers. Others on the other end of the spectrum, some are very authoritarian in their leadership, not according to the humility of Christ. On the other end of the spectrum, we have those that preach or they say they preach. They speak from the pulpit what popular culture wants them to hear and what Paul told Timothy has come to be. Hearers that will not tolerate sound doctrine They want to suit their own desires. They gather around them teachers that do what? They scratch their itching ears. So, folks, it's also a problem in some of our churches today. There is a need 
for standards of discipline to be re-implemented in our churches. A lack of discipline, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, but it's not. A lack of discipline is unnatural. We might think it's the natural course of things, but believe it or not, lack of discipline is unnatural. God created what kind of universe? He created a universe of order with definable moral and natural laws with predictable consequences. That's the way he created it. That's what is to be natural. He created us in his image. And naturally, the human spirit, I'm convinced of this, naturally the way he created us according to his nature in the Imago Dei is that we crave moral clarity. Not, we don't desire that there not be any truth. We crave definitive guidance. And we want orderliness. And God expects it. God expects it from his church, and he expects us as his church to set the example. To be what? I'm going to use a word here that people don't like, especially kids. And when we were kids, we didn't like it either. And that is, he expects us to be what? Disciplined. Why? For our moral good and character development. Why? Because it's necessary for good social order and peaceably living in our community. Why? Because folks, as Christians, he wants us to master our craft. He wants to master our craft and be true to our calling, which is to be disciples. And that word disciple is at the root of what other word? Discipline. You see, he expects his church, he expects us to be disciplined followers. And he expects and he calls upon the church to exercise church discipline. This is not a popular topic. You will not hear it preached from most pulpits in America today. The reason I'm preaching it is because we're going through the imperatives of Jesus and we come to it and there it is in black and white. We need to deal with it, he tells us. The text this morning comes from Matthew 18 and we are given very clear guidance about church discipline. Verse number 15, would you stand with me as we read God's word to honor it? Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. If your brother, and I would say also sister, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile. And a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. You know, this follows a pattern of Old Testament discipline. The word, one of the words, primary words that it's used for discipline in the Old Testament means Two or three things. There's kind of a progressive thought here. It can mean instruction, it can mean admonition, and it can also mean then correction. And if you think about that, there's a progression going from instruction and training then to warning and then correction. There's a progressive activity there in our teaching. Uh, as we do this in our families, we do it for what reason? To teach right from wrong, and we train. We train children. We actually, in training, restrain them. We establish, hopefully, definitive boundaries, and God establishes definitive boundaries for His church through Christ. 
between the yeses of life and the noes of life. And inevitably, what this leads to is the need for corrective action. And there is the last meaning of the word. Punishment. Yes, I said it. Punishment for our own good. Job says, happy is the man whom the Lord corrects. Happy is the man that the Lord chastises. Do not despise the Almighty's correction. Before we began worship this morning, I read the introduction to the book of Proverbs, and it has to do with instruction and wisdom. Those are two of the main themes of Proverbs. Instruction for what? Wisdom. And also for correction from the Lord. The third proverb says this, Do not despise the chastening. Do not despise the correction of the Lord. Don't be weary of His correction. You know, the couple of analogies in the Old Testament that help us see this. One of the analogies is like raising children. Israel was God's children. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. So it's the father, even in the Old Testament, that chastises his children. 656 times in the Old Testament, they're referred to as the children of Israel. And of course, descending from Israel, they're God's children. And correction is needed for children. For the Proverbs tell us about three or four very important things about this instruction. You see, children are naturally foolish. When we were children, we did, did childish things. We did foolish things. And sometimes, even as grown-ups, we do, and we act childishly. And when we are foolish, correction, we're told, drives out foolishness. Correction gives children wisdom. If they're left undisciplined, Solomon says, it leads to shame for their father and mother. He goes on to say, you know, spoil the rod. No. What was it? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Yeah. Well, really what that is saying is, he goes on to say, don't correct your children if you hate them. If you hate your children, don't correct them. But if you love them, correct them. Don't spare the rod if you love your children. Correction will not kill your children, but it will deliver them, and he's very explicit, it will deliver them from hell. So one of the analogies in the Old Testament for correction is raising children, and we're all the children of God. Another analogy is tending sheep and the shepherd, and we know from the 23rd Psalm that his what? His rod and his staff, they comfort me. That's interesting. Because the staff should be comforting with the crook at the end when we're in trouble, when we're in the cracks and the nook, nooks of life, and in danger, he can reach with a staff with that crook, and he can pull us out. That's very comforting. The rod, though, is a club. The rod was a club that he used to beat off predators, but it was also the rod that he did what? To prod the sheep to keep them on the right path. That should be comforting when the sheep feels that bump on his or her hindquarters. That's the Lord saying, you're going the wrong way. Correction. In New Testament, the discipline is very similar to the Old Testament. It's the fatherly advice given to his children. It, it parallels what we've just said. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews explains this in great detail. If you later turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 7 through 11, really explain what I have just talked about. But in verse number 5, it summarizes it. He says to his readers, you have forgotten something. My readers, you have forgotten this. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. 
The exhortation that is given to the body of Christ as believers, yes, but as children of God. And he goes on to say, my son, my child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not faint when you are reproved by him. And there he quotes Proverb 3. For those whom he, the Lord, loves, the ones that he loves as his children, he disciplines, also from Proverbs 3. And he scourges every child whom he receives. You see, he disciplines because he loves. Loves the motive. In Revelation, the third chapter, we are told through the mouth of Christ himself that is communicated through the angel, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. You see, our main concern here ought to be in church discipline, our consistent identity as the children of God and the witness that we give for Christ. People out there are watching the church, and we know that. Whenever there's a scandal in the church, whenever there's a disagreement in the church, whenever we argue in the church, they make a big deal about it out there. It's popular stuff for the newspapers and for the press. We must set the example. We must set the example that reflects well on Christ. So disciples of Christ, disciples are disciplined. They discipline themselves, and the church must discipline itself. So that not only individually, but the whole church, not just individually do I become more like Christ than you do, but the church then reflects the image of Christ. And it's like an, a mirror. When people look at that, they see Christ. It's a matter of corporate integrity and responsibility, Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18. We don't want to bring disrepute upon the body of Christ. And it's a responsibility from there to there, from here to the back, and folks that are not here today, the corporate body all together. It's all our responsibility to do what? To protect the honor and the reputation of Jesus Christ. And it means that sometimes we have to exercise what we call church discipline. The old term for it used to be a person was churched. What it meant was they came before the church and something pretty, pretty, significant happen. So how do we discipline in the church? What is this about? Well, three steps. It is simple. And we need to keep this in mind whenever we have a problem in the church, whenever there's sin in the church, or whenever there's contention in the church, whenever there's disagreement in the church, whenever there's strife in the church. Usually it is because there's some kind of sin involved, and we need to address it. So this is one of those formulas that we should commit to memory, each one of us, and know how to do it. Step one is one person goes. Well, who goes? If you look at the New American Standard, New International Version, and I read from the NASB this morning, it's not really clear who goes. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him. Well, who is that person that goes? What we do know is that the verb is singular. One person goes. All the other versions, King James and all, King James and all the other modern versions, make this a, a bit clearer. It says, if your brother sins against you, and that's drawn from some different set of manuscripts, and I think that it's pretty accurate. I, I know it's accurate. If a brother sins against you, or you, or you, then you, or you, or you are to go. Hmm. The singular, the one that is offended. Personal responsibility. If somebody has offended you or sinned against you, whose responsibility it is, is it? You don't come to the pastor and say, you need to fix this. Oh, you may come. You know what I'm going to say to you? It's what you ought to say if somebody comes to you and complains about another brother or sister. You ought to say what? It's your responsibility to go. 
Now, sometimes people offend me or they sin and I know it and I go. But it's not because of my role as pastor. It's because of my role as a member of the body. This is about personal accountability and responsibility. The duty of the pastor is not to be referee amongst disputing parties in the church. We take care of it because we have individual responsibility and accountability. And then you do what? You show him his fault. The word there means to rebuke, to convict. In other words, there's enough evidence in your mind that you have cause or reason to be very direct with that person. John 16, 8 says the Holy Spirit does that. It uses the same verb here. The Holy Spirit will come, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit is going to come, yes, to be the Spirit of truth. He's going to come as your comforter, he says in chapter 14. But in chapter 16, he says, the Holy Spirit will come to do this very thing, to rebuke, to convict the world of sin. And so when we go to that person, we need to go with that conviction that brings them to conviction. The noun means exactly that, to come with proof or conviction. There's a similar verb that is used for rebuke in the New Testament, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Peter then, after Jesus says that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to then be scourged and he is going to be killed and he's going to be raised on the third day. You remember what happened? What happened? Peter rebuked Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Jesus rebuked by Peter. But you know what? It's not the same word. The word here is sometimes when we go to a person and we challenge them using this verb, it's ineffectual. It's not with conviction. It's not with certainty. And sometimes it's a false accusation. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. But no, when we go to a person that has sinned and we know it individually, we go with the conviction and the certainty. And when we do, we are trying to compel them with persuasiveness to change their ways. As far as we know, we're absolutely certain and convinced that some sin has been committed. The guideline for this is very clear, Scripture. What is it that gives us the guideline, 2 Timothy 3.16? It is good for doctrine and what else? Rebuke. Doctrine and what else? Conviction. Doctrine and what else? To chastise, to correct, and to instruct. And the possible outcomes are twofold. The person will either hear, and the implication there is that what? They will listen, and they will admit their wrongdoing, and they will repent. That's the implication. And if that happens, then we have won the brother. And that's a great thing. It, It means that we have gained the brother. We haven't won over him. We haven't defeated him. We have not disgraced her. But we both profited. That's what it means. The word is used when Paul says to live is Christ, to die is, and here's the word, profit. It's gain. I count all things lost. If I gain, if I win Christ, it's that kind of winning thing that happens when a person is restored. Actually, the word has another metaphorical meaning. Gain, win, it also means spared. So what has happened is when we do this, we have done the person a favor because we have spared them the evil consequences of their impenitence. So we have a great responsibility. On the other hand, The person may not listen, may not hear. What it means is they don't listen, of course. Uh, They hear in a dismissive way. They keep on sinning. And further action is required. So step number two. Then you take one or two with you, and that's because Deuteronomy 19 is very clear. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of an iniquity or any sin of which he has committed. Not just a single person rise up. That means they then come up. They begin to make it public. It's not private. In that case, then, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
You see, it's no longer a private issue then. The witnesses must rise up, and when they do, it's serious enough matter that you need to make absolutely certain that there is evidence for the sin. It's not rumor. It's not gossip. And along with this, when you have two or three people that come to you to basically confront you or me with our sin, there is a kind of compelling sort of collective action that's involved there. And that's important because we know the Proverbs tell us elsewhere that there is wisdom and safety in multiple counselors. And so then we have to take it very seriously if more than one person comes to me and says that I have done something offensive, sinful. And if he doesn't listen again, then a different verb is used here. It's not just to hear. It is he hears carelessly. He neglects. He refuses. He digs or she digs her heels in and hardens his or her position and resists counsel. And it requires further action. And this then means the whole body must become involved. Step number three then is you tell it to the church. It makes it a matter of public record, a matter of public action, and it brings it before the ecclesia. This is one of two places that Jesus uses that term in the Gospels, we find, and it means, of course, church. But the original meaning was the assembly of all of Israel. All of the old covenant people would come together, and it was brought then before the judges, and they would determine whether or not there was merit then to the accusations. The other place that Jesus uses this is upon this rock I shall build my what? Church. That's important. The next reference to this word is then when we find it used not of the old covenant people, but the new covenant people, and it's after Pentecost in Acts 2.47, then when it says that the Lord daily was adding to the ecclesia, was adding to the church those who were being saved. So the implication is very clear here. Jesus is telling his apostles in the future that this is how the church is to act And if the person still refuses to listen, and that other verb is used, they continue to dig in their heels, resist, then we are to do what? Disfellowship them. Ah, that's tough. When was the last time you saw that happening in a church? Make him like a Gentile. Make him like a pagan. Make him like a tax collector. Now you might say, but wait a minute. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. He ministered to Gentiles. What Jesus is using here is their prejudice. He is appealing to their prejudice because, you know, they hated the Gentiles, would not have table fellowship with them according to rabbinic law. They really hated tax collectors who deceived them and stole from them. So you see what he's doing is he's appealing to a kind of image that they have. He was not saying that we don't have friendship with Gentiles and tax collectors, but those are outsiders. And outsiders we do not have table fellowship with. Outsiders are not invited to come to the table that we have this morning. Mm, That sounds pretty strict. When Chris leads us in the Lord's Supper in a few moments, one of the conditions that he will probably mention is, it is for those who are insiders. It is those who are, and and not, not in a negative, pejorative way, but those who have come into the body, who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who have given witness of that through believer's baptism. And this table is for all of those, inclusively, who have done that. But there is a boundary. There is a limit. There is a perimeter that is set. It is not for those that are not believers. This is the Lord's table. And so what he's saying here is basically, you know what he's saying. You disfellowship them. Yes, and the word is for us is excommunicate. It means that we do not have communion with that person, and the implication is until they have repented. 
You see, what's happening here is Jesus is talking about the power of the keys, and that's in the last verse. There are two other similar passages that are used about the power of the keys. One is in Matthew 16, which, to which I referred a few moments ago. After Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, what happened? He said, upon this rock, that is the confession of faith in Christ as the Son of God, I will build my church. And then he says, I give you the keys. And he, he uses this same passage there. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There he's talking about the gospel keys of life and death. When we preach the gospel to people and they hear it, we give a key to open their lives to eternity. And if we withhold that gospel message, they will stay bound to sin and death. In John 20, 23, he uses a very similar expression, not identical, but very similar, after his resurrection. And he breathes upon the people. He breathes the Spirit of God upon the apostles. And here he gives them the mercy keys. He says, whoever you forgive, they will be forgiven. Whoever you do not forgive, they will not be forgiven. And we dealt with that a couple of weeks ago when we said the church has a responsibility to announce the forgiveness of God. Not to give it, but to announce it. We don't forgive people in that way. Only God can forgive sin. But I'll say it again. This morning when, when Ben then pronounced God's forgiveness he was God's agent, which was pronouncing then, if you have repented of your sins according to the way Gail was praying, or maybe before she was, I hope we did pray that we would be forgiven before we came to worship Him today. He is announcing then the mercy of God, and we know that the guilt of that sin has been removed. It has been taken by the scapegoat into the wilderness. Folks, if we don't announce that, many people live with a burden of guilt all of their lives. Here he is pronouncing the ecclesial power of the keys, the ecclesial power of recovering sinners. It is a responsibility of the church to do that. We bind and we loose in the same way. We have those keys. How does, how does it work? Well, we come into the church because we're saved. And then we are edified by the church through the ministry of the church through the fellowship of the church, through the outreach of the church, through the discipleship of the church, through the worship of the church. We're edified. We grow. But if we sin and we stay in the body, that infection grows, and we become alienated from God. And we have a responsibility when we know that's happening with somebody. And here's the way I think it works. If the church disciplines properly, if we do what this says then, we actually cut people loose. Does that make sense? We separate them from the body temporarily not to have fellowship. But by setting them loose, it's with an attempt to recover them and to draw them closer and to bind them closely to Christ. If, on the other hand, we keep them close and we do not cut them loose and they do not go through the chastisement of the Lord, we may keep them physically close, but their relationship with God is loosened. It deteriorates and it declines. We have a responsibility as a church to exercise discipline. Let me apply this. Let me apply this briefly. I think, number one, God holds us accountable through discipline in this body, individually and corporately. He holds us accountable individually for our behavior because it reflects on the body of Christ, and He holds us accountable as the body of Christ to mirror who He is. Secondly, this is, begins with a private responsibility. We need to privately to maintain a personally disciplined walk with the Lord, and we individually need to be open to correction. 
You see, it's not always the other person. Sometimes I have done something, and if you see it and you know it, and I keep doing it, whether it's through ignorance or willful disobedience, then you have a responsibility to come to me and talk to me about it, and I do with you. We all need to be open to that personally. We also need to take personal initiative when we know one is then being sinful against the Lord. Thirdly, discipline must not be judgmental. You know, some people would say, look at Matthew 7, 1. You know, do not judge lest you be what? Judge. Folks, do not use that as an excuse not to exercise church discipline. That's an excuse. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying there is when we go to a person, we don't go to them with an attitude of superiority. I'm better than you. We don't go with a, with a goal of retribution or seeking personal vindication. We all have splinters in our eyes that are really like moats. So we don't go with that attitude. We go with an attitude of humility. But folks, we cannot use the excuse, oh, well, I'm a sinner, so I can't go to that other person. Folks, because we are sinners, we know where they are. And God calls us to personal accountability. Fourthly, we need to begin privately, discreetly, minimize publicity without embarrassment, and never rely on rumors or or gossip or promote it. Fifthly, we need to be clear and certain. We need to use clear biblical guidelines and discipline. And we go to 2 Timothy, for it is good for what? The Scripture is good for doctrine and for rebuke, correction, and instruction. So go to the Scripture to make sure that what you are talking about is truly sin and not just your opinion and maybe a different way of doing things than you do it. We must be clear and we must be certain about the accusations If the person does not respond appropriately, we need to take one or two witnesses with us. We need to follow through, even if it means temporarily breaking fellowship with a person who is sinning. This may be necessary in order to recover the person from their sin. And of course, you've heard this many times. Discipline should always be redemptive. It's because the father loves his children that he chastises them. And we must do it with a loving attitude. The aim is to reform and to forgive. To reform and to forgive and to restore and to recover to fellowship. There are a couple of things in closing. All of this, you'll notice in the passage that comes right after this, must be guided in prayer. So in our season of prayer, this is very, very important. One of the great prayer promises of all Scripture is found in the subsequent passage. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. And I believe that. If we pray in faith and we pray according to the will of God, we pray in Jesus' name, we pray believing, all of those things that we've talked about, then we believe that we will receive it and it will be ours. I understand that. But this passage is taken out of this context. It is specifically talking about our need, folks, collectively, to pray for the wayward sinner. That we touch upon this So it's not just a matter of my going to a person and the church then disfellowshipping that person, but it's a matter of the church then coming together collectively to pray for that person for that person's recovery. It's also done in Christ's presence. Look at verse number 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in your midst. And and that's one of our classic definitions of the what? We, We say it's the church. It's not really, but it has that implication. So the body of Christ is where two or three persons are gathered together. But there's another, another meaning here. What he's saying is, listen, folks, I'm in your midst. 
Hey, I reside with you. I'm back on this third pew. I'm back on the eighth pew. I am here with you together. I'm in the hospital with Ken. I'm in with Ken at home. I'm in your midst. Don't embarrass me. Don't bring dishonor upon me. Don't damage my reputation. Remember, wherever you are gathered together, people are watching you. And when they watch you, they think they're seeing Christ. I'm in your midst. You see, we're agents of God's boundless mercy. We must take a stand against sin, and we cannot condone it, and we're all sinners. We should all expect to experience correction from time to time. God has a limited toleration for impenitent rebellion. Look at verse 16 again. Yeah. He doesn't tolerate it. And we must preserve the dignity of Christ's honor and reputation in verse 20. Th th those are clear. But on the other hand, what happens right after this passage? Peter comes to Jesus and he says, okay, now, how many times should we forgive? And what does he say? Not just seven times, but how much? Seventy times seven. Though God's tolerance for impenitence is very limited, His mercy is everlasting. When a person does repent, when a person confesses of his or her sin, when they are recovered, when we have won, when we have gained our brother or our sister, heaven rejoices and God forgives. So we need to pronounce on behalf of the church the forgiveness of God so they do not carry that guilt. This morning, if you're listening and you say, I know I'm a sinner, but I've done things that God would never forgive. I've done things that if I walk into that church on Gamble Street and James Avenue, they would shun me and they would turn me away. Let me tell you, that is not the case. Any person who comes and repents of his or her sin and says, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I know that he died for my sin. His redemptive blood can wash me clean. And I know he offers me eternal life. If you do that this morning, God loves you. He will forgive you. He will forgive any sin. And he will forgive it more than once with a view towards your following Jesus Christ and obeying him in the future. What a marvelous God we serve. His mercy is abounding, his love is everlasting, and he will forgive any sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we come to your table this morning that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you have made us insiders. You've made us part of your family. You've made us part of your kingdom. Not that we're superior, not that we're better. We are all sinners but you've redeemed us and you've called us to your table to fellowship and to share in the love of your son, Jesus Christ. And this morning our prayer is, if there is someone who is listening, somebody who wants to become a part of the family of God, that they will surrender their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they will be forgiven of their sins, that their trespasses will be washed away and they will be made as, as white as snow and that you will invite them into your kingdom and give them eternal life. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.